thank you, Marcus. And thank you, Tim, for sharing from the heart about the centrality of apologetics for the new evangelization, but a sort of new apologetic for the new evangelization that is rooted in beauty as well as truth, that the inner logic of God's love reaches into our minds and also our hearts. So let's unite our hearts together in a word of prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we approach you now with humility, gratitude, and boldness. In the name of Jesus, your eternal Son, the Word made flesh, and in his name we pray for the Holy Spirit to come down upon us, to enlighten our minds with the light of your truth, to enkindle our hearts with the fire of your love, to inform us, to transform us, and then to send us forth, not only as faithful disciples who follow Jesus, but as fruitful apostles who enable others to encounter our Savior and Lord. Help us then and hear us as we pray the family prayer that Jesus taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Benedict, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, everybody's talking about the new encyclical, but there is another one. And I want to emphasize both, not only Laudato Si, but also Lumen Fide. Because Lumen Fide is the first encyclical in the history of the church to be the work of two papal hands, or I should say four, literally, because it was begun by Pope Benedict XVI. It was completed, then promulgated by Pope Francis. The year of faith was when it was released. And the feast of Saints Peter and Paul, June 29th, was the official date of publication. And how fitting to release this on the day when the church celebrates the two principal evangelizers of the first century, of the old evangelization, if you will. A fitting date, especially when you see how it was the work of two men, Benedict and Francis, who are the two principal evangelizers of the 21st century, the new evangelization, if you will. And it's self-described in the opening as being the work not of two hands, but of four hands. And so the successor of Peter and Paul, the successor of Peter, Pope Francis writes, yesterday, today, and tomorrow is always called to strengthen his brothers and sisters in that faith which God the Father has given as a light for the path of humanity, close quote. And I think it's interesting as we celebrate the continuity from Benedict to Francis, even if the media emphasizes and distorts that and makes it seem as though it's a rupture, we can also see how fitting it was for them to publish a work 
on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, who were remarkable men, model Christians, model evangelizers, and yet, however, they were as different from one another as two men can be. Different in personal style, Peter and Paul, different in temperament, different in pastoral methods, different in theological approach, and different in their own upbringing. One was trained by the great Rabbi Gamaliel, the other one was trained to fish in the Sea of Galilee. And yet I think in so many ways their collaboration back in the first century helps us to understand the collaboration of Benedict and Francis in the 21st century and how critical it is for us to recognize that whatever is taught is in continuity with the faith of all ages. In this important document on the light of faith, Lumen Fidei, I want to just quote briefly from what I consider to be a highlight, and that is paragraph 25. In paragraph 25, Popes Benedict and Francis address what they describe as the crisis of truth in our age. In contemporary culture, we often tend to consider the only real truth to be that of technology, what makes life easier and more comfortable. In the end, they go on to say, we are left with relativism. And this, of course, evokes that phrase, the dictatorship of relativism, which we associate with Pope Benedict. But here comes the highlight, the climax. As they're describing this relativism, they both write and they say, in this regard, we can speak of a massive amnesia in our contemporary world. A massive amnesia. You know what amnesia is, don't you? Or have you forgotten? <laughs> they continue, the question of truth is really a question of memory, deep memory. So memory is one of those faculties of the soul that sort of gets a little bit uh, underrated. We think of intellect and will, but as Augustine points out, memoria is at the root of our soul. You find this in St. Albert the Great as well as St. Bonaventure. I recommend Joseph Pieper's book on the four cardinal virtues and his treatment of prudence for a, an exquisite account of memoria and how it's deeper and bigger and more profound than simply memory. That's why I prefer to use memoria because that's what they're getting at. You know, we think of memory, you know, to remember what we had for dinner last night or what we wore the day before. But the fact is memory is so much more than that. Without memory, I couldn't finish the sentence. <laughs> Without memory, I wouldn't know who I am or what you're doing here. Memory is sort of what Augustine describes as the father in the trinity of the soul. Memory, intellect, and will. So the loss of memory, deep memory, is not a small problem. Massive amnesia is what has settled in upon our age. Or as Chesterton would say, we don't know what we're doing any longer because we don't know what we're undoing. So what can we do in order to overcome massive amnesia? What can we do to restore memory, deep memory? Well, among many things we can do, there is one thing in particular I'd like to focus on, which when we do, in memory of him, we're more than just remembering the past. We're more than commemorating the Paschal mystery. We are representing the eternal mystery of the divine trinity 
manifested in the fullness of time for the purpose of filling us with a life that is not merely human but divine. Not merely temporal but eternal. And not something that will fade away but something that is unfading. This reminds me of another statement that comes from Pope Benedict. He gave this back in the synod that he convened in Rome to discuss the Word of God. And then he published this in his beautiful treatment of the Word of God, Verbum Domini. He says, and I quote, the Word of God is the foundation of everything. It is the true reality. Therefore, we must change our concept of realism. Because the realist is the one who recognizes the Word of God in this apparently weak reality as the foundation of all things. All things come from the Word. They are products of the Word, for in the beginning was the Word. And so he continues. This means that all of creation, in the end, is conceived of to create a place of encounter between God and his people, a place where the history of love between God and his people can grow and develop. The history of salvation, then, is not a small event on a poor planet in the immensity of the universe. Benedict continues, it is not a minimal thing which happens by chance on some lost planet. Rather, it is the motive for everything, the motive for creation. Everything is created so that this story can exist, the encounter between God and his people. In this sense, salvation history, which is the covenant, precedes creation. Indeed, one can say that while material creation is the condition for salvation history, it is the history of the covenant that is the true cause of the cosmos. Close quote. What I would like to focus on should come as no surprise to any of you who have heard me or read me before, and that is the notion of covenant. Covenant is the means by which we overcome massive amnesia. Covenant is the means by which we retrieve memory. We restore deep memory. For the new covenant is the basis for how it is we do all things in remembrance of him. One of my favorite writers, in fact, one of Pope Francis's favorites, Romano Guardini. You might know that he was called to go over to Europe to do his doctorate, which Bergoglio never finished, but the topic was going to be Romano Guardini. He sounds like very Italian, but in fact, he was a German. But in his work on meditations before mass, he says something about the covenant that I think is really salient. He says, and I quote, it is strange how completely the idea of the covenant has vanished from the Christian consciousness. We mention it, but it seems to have lost its meaning for us. And then he goes on to talk about all of these other things that we prefer instead, and then concludes this. We need to recover this notion of covenant and its centrality because, he says, quote, we are Christians because of a covenant. And Holy Mass is the commemoration of God's new covenant with men. It is our renewal of the covenant. At every Mass, he says, we reaffirm that contract. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and make one slight adjustment. Because there was a little bit of slippage as you move from the beginning to the end of this chapter. Indeed, covenant 
is crucial. And people seem to have sort of forgotten about that also. And we are Catholic Christians because of the covenant. And that in the Mass, we renew that covenant. But we're doing something more than reaffirming a contract. And I don't want to pit one thing against the other, but in fact, a covenant in ancient Israel was much more than a contract. And this is something that Pope Benedict himself emphasizes. He says, and I quote, the covenant is not a two-sided contract, but a gift of God's creative love. And then he goes on to describe how the covenant is indeed the central theme of scripture itself, thus giving us the key to the whole of it. And then he goes on to describe how the covenant is a blood relationship, a filial bond, a nuptial mystery. In ancient Israel, Jews could easily differentiate between a contract and a covenant because a contract was simply based upon the exchange of property. This is yours and that is mine. But in a covenant, the formula was, I am yours and you are mine. And why? Because a contract involved nothing more than a promise. I give you my word and you give me yours in order for this exchange to take place. And my word is my name and the sign of the contract is the signature. Whereas a covenant can only come into existence through an oath when we invoke the holy name of God. Because we're exchanging more than goods and services. We're exchanging life and entering into interpersonal communion. And so if the promise is the glue of a contract that is temporary and limited, the name of God is the cement that makes the two one and makes that oneness indissoluble. And not only between two individuals, but between tribes and nations. A covenant is something so much more than a contract, and yet it begins in a contractual way with God giving a promise, but at the same time as we read in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, how God wanted to show how unchangeable the character of his purpose was in addition to giving Abraham a promise, he interposed with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to prove false, we could seize the hope that is before us. The word of God's promise is the object of faith, but the oath of God is the object of our hope, as we read in Hebrews 6. And it's helpful because even though the term oath does not you know, stir up any warm feelings within us, we do well to remember that the Latin word for a covenant oath is what? Sacramentum. And so Jesus doesn't just give us promises. He gives us a sacrament. Seven of them, parenthetically, which is my way of taking a tangent. I should also point out that the Hebrew word to swear a covenant oath, shavat, literally means to seven oneself. You can go to Genesis 21 and read about the very first covenant established among humans between Abraham and Abimelech. And what does he do? He takes seven lambs of the flock, of, and then he offers them as a sacrifice, and Abimelech asks him, what is the meaning of these seven lambs? And he says, you will be a witness that we're going to swear an oath, we're going to make a covenant, and, the, and they did. And so sacramentum is the Latin term for covenant oath, shiva, literally to seven oneself, is what it means in Hebrew for ancient Israelites to make covenants with others. From that point on, these potential rivals called each other brothers because a covenant seals bonds of sacred kinship. 
Sacred kinship bonds go so far beyond a contract. Instead of a wage, you've got an inheritance. Instead of a, a slave, you've got a, a child. Instead of a factory, you've got a family. Instead of just seeking self-interest, you pledge self-sacrifice. So getting this right is crucial, especially when it comes to the sacred scriptures. The word covenant in Hebrew, berit, occurs 289 times in what we call the Masoretic text, what Jews regard to today as their, as their Bible. 289 times. And then in what we call the Deuterocanonical books to round out the whole Old Testament, the term is used 36 more times so that in effect we've got 325 occurrences of covenant in the Old Testament. In contrast, it's rather significant that when we turn from the Old to the New, the term for covenant in Greek, diatheke, only occurs 33 times in the 27 books of the New Testament. 33 times. It's a significant, disproportionate diminishing. And in fact, of those 33 occurrences, over half of them occur in one book, the book of Hebrews, because it was addressing the Hebrews who thought in covenantal terms who had to get out of the old and into the new. So 17 out of the 33 occurrences of Diatheke are in one book, Hebrews. The other 16 are spread out among the other 26. This has led a lot of scholars to ask why. Why is there seemingly such a lack of emphasis, a lack of usage of the notion of covenant? Now, some people say it's because it wasn't important. E.P. Sanders and N.T. Wright point out that no, Covenant didn't need to be used. It didn't have to be asserted because it was assumed. It was the air that first century Jews breathed. And that's true, but I don't think that's complete. I think there's a deeper reason behind the point under consideration. I would propose to you that the deeper reason why it is that covenant occurs so much less frequently in the new than in the old is not because of how it was forgotten, but because of how it was fulfilled. The fulfillment of the old covenant by Jesus in the new was more than just restorative. It didn't just simply bring things back to the status quo ante. The Old Testament ends like a story in search of an ending because the Jews are in exile, and yet they are in covenant, which is an irrevocable bond of sacred kinship with the God of our fathers. And so the Messiah must come to renew that covenant. And when Jesus comes, he does. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come rather to fulfill them. And that's what first century Jews understood to be the old covenant. But the incarnation of the eternal Son of God effected something more than just the fulfillment of the old covenant. Christ's coming brought about, in effect, such an explosion of good news that the divine fulfillment exceeded all human expectations. The highest hopes, the holiest longings of the most pious Jews. And so from the start of his public ministry, when proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus employs not covenant terminology, very often, in fact, he didn't even use the word covenant except for once. 
And as we'll see in a few moments, it comes at the very end of his ministry. But at the beginning of his ministry, when he proclaims his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he employs not divine covenant terminology, but divine kinship terminology with unprecedented frequency and force. In the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus refers to God as Father some 17 times. And when you compare that to the count of the rabbis, how many times is God referred to as Father in the Old Testament? The grand total is 17 times. And so in his very first sermon, what does Jesus do? He refers to God as Father 17 times and then goes on to call him Father almost 200 times and never addresses God in any other terms except Father. And at the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount teaches us the Our Father. And if you go back to the first century and study rabbinic sources, you'll discover that Jesus not only prayed in a unique way, he taught us to pray in a way that not even the most devout rabbi ever dared to do. They never addressed the God of our fathers as our Father God. It wasn't until the incarnation of the eternal Son unveiled the mystery of fatherhood as being more than figurative, but real, more than metaphorical. This is the metaphysical mystery of God's own eternal life. In the Old Testament, the covenant is explicit. It's prominent. It's emphatic, whereas divine kinship Though present is muted, at most implicit, and no wonder because of the danger of idolatry that it might evoke. And yet the new covenant is precisely what reverses these proportionate emphases because in the New Testament, Jesus effects a fulfillment of the old that exceeds Israel's hope. The terminological result of which is what biblical scholars notice, even if they can't explain. And that is the language of divine kinship must increase while the explicit use of covenant terminology now predictably decreases. And yet we hardly notice. We barely even recognize what was so distinctive, what was so unique, what was so unprecedented, what was so revolutionary. Enough to get him killed. As we read in John 5, this is why they sought all the more to kill him, because he not only healed on the Sabbath, but he called God Father, thus making himself equal to God. And yet for us, it elicits a yawn. We get distracted. God's fatherhood, Jesus' divine sonship, has become little more than background noise, white noise, like the wallpaper that I hardly ever notice, when in fact this was the breakthrough. This was the fulfillment, and I'm convinced that it is one aspect of the New Testament that surpasses the old and leads us to recognize just how huge the gift of the Holy Eucharist is. Now, I want to just step back and consider this for one more moment, because in the Old Testament, where you find God referred to as Father 17 times, you can notice the contrast when you compare it to the Tetragrammaton, what usually gets transliterated as Lord, or what we all hear sometimes as Yahweh, that occurs almost 7,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. Elohim, the generic Hebrew term for God, is approximately 2,600 times. So to call God Father 17 times is a remarkable reticence 
and especially when we hardly recognize it. And then Jesus calling him Father 17 times in his first sermon and, and almost 200 times in his subsequent prayer. And then enabling us, commanding us to pray our Father. And this emerges in a way that is really significant throughout the Gospels. The salutation or designation of God as Father occurs approximately 300 more times in the New Testament. And that doesn't include the metaphors. So apart from the Greek word theos, it is by far and away the most common name for God in the New Testament with an exclusivity unparalleled in the history of religions, especially ancient Israel. And most particularly for Paul, Father is not just one characteristic of God among others, but the sum of what it means to be a Christian, to have the life of the Son in the Spirit, and to have the spirit of sonship crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father which in the first century Jews only used in addressing their papa, their daddy. But Jesus uses it in the, Geth, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in giving human consent to the divine will of a love that would be life-giving. And so we have to kind of wake ourselves up and allow ourselves to be somewhat amazed at how unamazing this has become. And then renew that sense of gratitude. Renew that sense of Eucharistic amazement, especially when we recognize that this is the occasion, the only time Jesus employs the term covenant. It's interesting because he uses the phrase kine diatheke, new covenant, as we read in Luke 22, 20, and then again in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. But I just want to focus for a moment more on what it is we're dealing with to come to know God as our Father. For as I said, in the Old Testament, the pious referred to the Lord as the God of our fathers, but never our Father God. Back then, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so the sacred kinship bonds were exclusively horizontal, like a shepherd who guards the family of sheep and finds the strays and brings them back. But what happens when the shepherd becomes the Lamb of God for the purpose of taking away the sins of the world? What happens when the eternal word is made flesh? What happens is the unveiling of God, so that instead of just the Creator, we come to see Him as Abba. Creator describes what He does in the beginning. Abba describes who He is from all eternity. He's an eternal Father the eternal result of which is a son who isn't younger or smaller than the father, but co-eternal. And the bond of the love for the father and the son is the Holy Spirit. Not a what, but a who. The interpersonal communion. So the eternal trinity, or as St. John Paul called it, the divine family. This is the highest mystery in the hierarchy of truths. It's the only mystery that explains all the others. We don't talk about it too much. Every time we make the sign of the cross, we ought to ponder it anew. Contemplate the fact that God's eternal fatherhood is more than a metaphor. It's not a figure of speech. It is the eternal mystery that leads us into the inner life of the Trinity. It is the only thing that makes sense out of everything, including the things that don't seem to make any sense at all, because he calls us to a love that is not finite but infinite, not human but divine. 
the only way we will ever get to the place where we were made to be, the only thing that we were ever created to be was to enter into the eternal trinity and learn how to call that home. But we can't do it on our own. We can love on our own to a finite extent, but we cannot love to an infinite degree. But God is not bound by our limits. We can't scale the heights and enter the eternal trinity, but he can condescend to our depth and to our weakness and even to our death and make it something more than the loss of life. For instituting the Eucharist, he transformed death into the gift of life. He transformed death into prayer and that prayer into the liturgy of the new covenant. And so for us as fathers and mothers, for us as husbands and wives, as for, for us who, who are part of natural human families, we've got to recognize that the new covenant is simply more than restoring the natural bonds of human kinship. Later on this year, we're going to be celebrating the 800th anniversary of what is probably the most significant ecumenical council in the high Middle Ages, and that is Fourth Lateran. Called by Innocent III, it brought about a great renewal at a time of great decadence. We tend to forget just how bad things were in previous times and how God can use a saintly man and an ecumenical council. And if you look at Fourth Lateran, as we're going to be doing later on, I'm going to be working on a conference and a series of presentations in November, for that's when the, the council was held. You'll see that at the center of the Fourth Lateran Council was the notion of analogy. Because when I say God is a father, you know exactly what I mean, right? You've all, we've all had fathers. And the notion of analogy shows us the way of causality. That the traces of God who has caused all things, those traces are found in the effects. And so we know what it means to have God as our father, for we've all had fathers. And yet analogy is not only the similarity between the creator and the creature, but the even greater dissimilarity. Because the dissimilarity between the creator and the creature is immeasurably more than the similarity. And so the third stage, after the way of causality and the way of negation, which purifies, is the way of eminence to recognize that what is true in the creatures is far more true and more eminently perfect in God. So what does it mean to have a father? Well, we all know it means to have someone who's possessing a male gender, who's got a body equipped with an organ, and he performs an act, hopefully with the spouse who is your mother. And so we can see how it works with God, except that he doesn't have a gender, he doesn't have a body, he doesn't have an organ, he doesn't perform an act with a spouse, so therefore what must we conclude? That he really isn't a father. It's merely metaphorical. It's a figure of speech. No, what we must do is purify our notion of fatherhood to see that it's not primarily physical, it's spiritual. It's not primarily corporeal, it involves something much more than the biological, it's theological. This is why God is not less of a father than me, but far more. This is why St. Joseph is not merely a foster father, but a virginal father who participates in divine paternity through the word of his consent, not less than I did with Kimberly, but far more. And why that participation in divine fatherhood is the mystery of why St. Joseph is the patron, literally the father of the universal church. And why our priests are fathers, not less than me, not less than you, but much more. I am the breadwinner, but I can't speak the words of consecration over bread and give them the bread of life. 
like our spiritual fathers can and will in just a few minutes. So analogy is the way we come to understand how the new covenant fulfills the old, not simply by restoring Israel to its property and the ethnic integrity of the 12 tribes. Those were the old wineskins that burst. The new wineskins that came with the new wine of the new covenant, this is what establishes divine kinship. In the Old Testament and in rabbinic Judaism, a man like Saul of Tarsus, trained by the rabbi Gamaliel, loved the word koinonia. In Greek, that's the word for communion. But he probably used the Hebrew word haburah, which means communion or fellowship. But the rabbis used it exclusively in a horizontal way because the Lord is my shepherd. He's the God of our fathers. He'll restore a human family. But what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, is something of a rupture. It's something of a breakthrough. It's how the new fulfills the old in an all-surpassing way. For that is where Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? He is now applying the word that he would have used commonly as a Pharisee with his fellow Pharisees to describe the brotherhood in the covenant of the old times. Only now, he's applying it vertically. For God the Father sent the Son to give us the spirit of sonship. He took what is ours, namely our human nature, to impart what is his, that we might be made partakers of the divine nature. This isn't pious fiction. This is not merely rhetoric. This goes beyond the metaphorical so that, as the Catechism declares in the opening paragraph, God calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. And elsewhere, the Catechism goes on to say the church is nothing other than the family of God. It is more of a family than the Hans could ever hope for. And this is the new covenant. And it shows us how it is that the analogy of the old shows us something of the new, and yet the new surpasses it. Human kinship, human marriage, human fatherhood and sonship anticipate something divine, something much greater. And this is what Pope Benedict says, and I quote, The crisis of fatherhood which we are living through today constitutes the heart of the human crisis that is threatening the world. So how do we address the crisis of fatherhood that we're living through, which constitutes the heart of the human crisis that is threatening the whole world? It's not simply to restore human fatherhood by natural means. It's to accept the gift of divine fatherhood through supernatural grace and to allow that grace not only to build upon nature, but to heal it, to perfect it, and to elevate it. This is who we are as Catholics. This is what we do in every Mass. And this is why Jesus reserved himself when it came to the terminology that he employed. He reserved diatheke, kine diatheke, to one occasion. He only used the word covenant once. He only speaks of the covenant with respect to the new covenant as we read in Luke 22, 20. And what is he doing? Well, he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples one last time in the upper room. But is that all he was doing? No, of course not. He wasn't just celebrating the Passover. He was fulfilling it as the Lamb of God. 
Now, the Passover was the highest and holiest sacrificial feast in the Old Covenant. And that isn't less true in the New, it's much more. But what was the Passover in the Old Covenant? It wasn't simply a meal. It always started off as a sacrifice. It was primarily a sacrifice, secondarily a meal, and the meal was a sacrificial communion upon the victim. And again, if that was true in the Old with the Lamb, it isn't less but more true in the New with the Lamb of God. So he was celebrating it one last time as a good, pious Jew, but he was fulfilling it as the Lamb of God. But he wasn't fulfilling the Passover of the Old Covenant simply to kind of retire it respectfully. He was fulfilling it precisely by transforming it into the New Covenant Passover. And so they were going along, everything was familiar and smooth until he said something that they never heard before, that we've heard all of our lives. He said, this is my body which will be given up for you. We barely notice it. They surely noticed it because you don't just improvise when it comes to the liturgy of the Passover. What was that? Nobody interrupted him, apparently, to ask for an explanation. Besides, he was back on track a moment later. But they must have wondered, what was that rhetorical insertion? This is my body, which will be given up for you. And then later on, there he goes again, when he takes the third chalice, the, the chalice of blessing. And what does he say? This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the New Testament, the blood of the kind idea of thinking. That is the only time he used the phrase. New Testament. The phrase the New Testament only occurs six times in the New Testament. That's rather startling. Kinetia theke only occurs six times in the New Testament. Jesus only used it once in the upper room when he instituted the Eucharist. And actually before Luke wrote his gospel describing those words of institution, Paul had actually employed the phrase earlier when he wrote to the Corinthians in the mid-50s. In 1 Corinthians 11, 25, Paul is actually the first New Testament writer to speak of the New Testament. But it only occurs six times in the whole New Testament. And three of those are in the book of Hebrews. No surprise there. The other three are, well, in Luke 22, 20, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, and in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. And it's significant to notice how all three of them, apart from Hebrews, refer to what? Jesus takes this chalice and says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, do this in memory of me. Well, what is this? This is what we call the Eucharist. But Jesus didn't call it the Eucharist. What did he call it? The New Testament, the new covenant. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the kine diatheke, the new covenant, the new testament of my blood, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what did he add? Do this in memory of me. This is the Eucharist, but it's what he calls the New Testament. Notice that Jesus didn't say, write this in memory of me. He said, do this. And as a matter of historical fact, over half of the 12 who were with him never ended up contributing a single book to the collection of 27 that we now call the New Testament. But not because the rest of them were disobeying orders. He didn't say, write this in memory of me. He never wrote anything down that was permanent. He never commanded them to write things down. I'm glad that some of them did, but most of them didn't. 
Because he didn't say write this. He said do this, and that's what all of them were doing after the death and resurrection. Preaching the gospel, baptizing new converts, and as we hear at Pentecost in Acts 2.42, the breaking of the bread, which is Luke's favorite expression for what? We call the Eucharist or the Mass. And elsewhere as well. This is why the early church wasn't sitting around waiting and wondering, what are we supposed to believe? Why won't one of you 12 just start writing us a gospel or an epistle or maybe even an apocalypse? Because he didn't say, write this. He said, do this. And so I want to propose to you that when we listen to the New Testament, what we discover is that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it became a document according to the document. If you want to be a New Testament Christian, as I longed to be for so many years, I discovered that that means you've got to become a Eucharistic Catholic. And in celebrating the Eucharist, that is the New Testament. Where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass, people ask? Point out to them that the sacrifice of the Mass is the New Testament. It's the only thing that the New Testament ever calls the New Testament. In Luke 22, 20, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me, as we will hear in just a little while. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, what is Paul talking about? The night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And then after supper, he took the cup. And what does Paul say? This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Covenant, the blood of the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the other time Paul uses the phrase new covenant, he describes himself and how he feels unworthy, insufficient. And why? Why is he so inadequate? He's not inadequate to be one of the contributors to the New Testament. He says, I'm not sufficient to be a minister of the New Testament. And the term that he uses is diakonos. It's a diakonia. The New Testament is a ministry for Paul. It isn't literary, it's liturgical. And so it is a ministry that he performs as a minister. And so when he's writing about the New Testament, in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, he's talking not about a document, but a sacrament. And so like any good sign, the New Testament is pointing beyond itself to something even more real. Far from diminishing the value or the truth of the, the Bible in general, the New Testament in particular. No, you know, if ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, and we know that it is, St. Jerome reminds us, ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is ignorance of Scripture. You're reading the New Testament, and you're missing the main point. That encountering Christ in the New Testament is to consume the Word made flesh in the Holy Eucharist. And to do this in memory of him in a way that goes beyond commemoration, it goes beyond remembrance, it is a representation. In fact, the Hebrew term for remembrance, zakar, or zikaron, was actually used in the liturgy to describe the memorial offering. That's how the disciples, as good first century Jews, would have heard these words. So we've got to go out and draw back so many of these fallen away Catholics. You know the statistics from the Pew Research Center that 30% of those raised Catholic in America still call themselves Catholic practicing, which in the survey meant what? That they go to Mass at least once a month. I'm not sure I'd call that practicing. 
But then the statistic goes on to describe how, what? I have it here. 38% prefer to call themselves cultural Catholic, but seldom or never attend Mass. The other 32% call themselves non-Catholic, ex-Catholic. 3% are non-Christians, 14% are unaffiliated, 15% have joined a fundamentalist, Protestant, or Pentecostal faith community. If the Good Shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one, what are we talking about here? What we're talking about is the new evangelization. What we're talking about is re-evangelizing the de-Christianized, the de-Catholicized. A lot of them will raise questions to you like they did for me. I ran into an old friend from high school in the airport. He had been a Catholic. I used to pray upon him. He came up to me. He said, are you Scott Hahn? I'm thinking he watches EWTN. And I'm like, yes. You don't recognize me? And I'm thinking, that's not how TV works. <laughs> and then it reminded me. We graduated from St. Clair back in 75, and that's when I recognized my old Catholic buddy, Chris. And that's when he announced to his delight, I have been looking forward to seeing you to give you the good news that I am now what you are, and that is an evangelical, Bible-believing, New Testament Christian. And I'm like, well, that's great, Chris, but I'm now an evangelical, Bible-believing, New Testament Catholic Christian. <laughs> and he was shocked, needless to say. And we didn't have the time to get into it, and so he called me a week later, and then we got into it. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'm going to turn the cafeteria tables around, and you know, what are you talking about? He said, you'd sit down in the cafeteria and ask me and my Catholic buddies this question, where in the New Testament did you find the sacrifice of the Mass? And you pointed out to us that the Mass was a meal, that the sacrifice was Calvary. And I said, Chris, yeah. And I recognize that we still have a lot of common ground because for me the mass is a meal and calvary is the sacrifice as a catholic i believe that he said well back then i wasn't too sure and i apologize for the state of catechetical formation back in the 70s but i went on to point out to him that back in the first century on good friday nobody would have been able to describe calvary as a sacrifice and he didn't believe me at first and i'm like no any good Jew following Jesus could have told you that for a sacrifice to take place, it, it had to take place in the temple on top of an altar with a Levite standing by, whereas Jesus was crucified outside the temple, far from, he was crucified outside of Jerusalem, far from the temple where there were no altars with Levites standing by. I said, what we would have witnessed and described to our family members later that night would not have been a sacrifice, it would have been a Roman execution, plain and simple. So the real question is, how in the world did a Roman execution become a sacrifice that all Christians now affirm whether we're Catholics or not? And he's like, I have no idea. I said, I didn't either for years until I went to the early church fathers for help, and I found a lot of it there because what you find in the early church fathers is the fact that they're continually referring to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, where we read in verses 6 and 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So you've got to look at Good Friday in the light of what Jesus did on Holy Thursday. And what was he doing, Chris, on Holy Thursday? He wasn't just celebrating the Passover. He was fulfilling it by transforming it from the old to the new. And what was the Passover and the old? It wasn't just a meal. It was, just a sac it was a sacrifice first and then a meal. And I said, so if Jesus is fulfilling the old by instituting the Eucharist as the Passover of the new covenant, it can't be just a meal. I said, if the Eucharist is just a meal then Calvary is just an execution. But if the Eucharist is the Passover of the new covenant, it can't be just a meal or it wouldn't be a Passover. It had to be a sacrifice which alone illuminates 
the deep meaning of what Jesus said and did and why it's more than rhetoric, more than ritual. The reality was that this body of his was now that bread. That bread was now his body. And that wine became his blood. And that body was given up out of love. That wine was poured out as blood for sacrifice. And I said, the fact is, Holy Thursday is what transforms Good Friday from an execution to a sacrifice. And he said, back up, what was that you just said? I was a lot of things. He said, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then what? I said, then the Mass, then, then Calvary is just an execution. He said, yeah, I never thought of it before. I said, neither did I. But once you do, what a difference it makes to recognize that he wasn't losing his life on Friday. He was making it a gift of love when he instituted the Eucharist on Holy Thursday. He wasn't the victim of Roman violence. He was the victim of divine love and mercy. And I said, if the Eucharist on Holy Thursday is what transformed the execution on Good Friday into the holiest sacrifice of all times, then Easter Sunday is what transformed that sacrifice into a sacrament which we now do in memory of him. Like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus suddenly recognized him in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread. And as we do too. This is who we are as New Testament Christians. This is what we do in the new evangelization. And this is why when we renew our covenant, we are entering into the depth of a mystery that goes beyond our most profound and orthodox theological formulations. As the Catechism says, quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, our faith does not terminate in doctrinal propositions, but in the realities that are conveyed by means of the dogmas. That doesn't in any way devalue the dogma. If anything, it endows the dogmas with a far greater value than just their truth because they're the indispensable means to lead us into a mystery that goes beyond our wildest dreams and the highest hopes of the holiest Israelites. This is who we are. This is what we do in every Mass. And this is why the joy of the Gospel, to quote Pope Francis once more, is the key to the new evangelization. It's more than just the title of his other document, Evangelii Gaudium. The joy of the Gospel is, as he told millions of youth that were down in South America for World Youth Day, the key that will unlock the hearts of all that we meet to share the gospel. The fact is, you are here at Christendom, my favorite little Catholic college on the planet. I, I do have another little Catholic university that I'm terribly <laughs> fond of. But now that my son-in-law teaches here in the English department, now that we've got grandkids here, my heart is captured. I love this place, and you do too. And the fact that you're here shows me that you are studious and committed to really learning the faith and growing in it. But the fact is, most of us here are never going to be able to answer every question or every common objection or prove it all by quoting the Bible. But the one thing we can do is enjoy being Catholic. The joy of the Lord is my strength in the old and it's even truer in the new. This holy passion that doesn't necessarily mean that we've just got to be babbling brooks. No, still waters run deep. We're called to be contemplatives. You might not ever get, you know, get up and give a talk at Christendom like a, you might not be as intense as I am. Thank God most people aren't. <laughs> but the fact is, you can be a saint in the middle of the world and through friendship you can share the joy of the gospel and that's what people are looking for. More than any argument, more than any proof text, Joy is what people find irresistible. Joy is what proves to be more irrefutable 
than whatever apologetic proofs we ought to deploy, and we ought to deploy them. We ought to know them to be able to give an answer for the defense, for, to give a reasonable answer to those who ask us to explain the hope that is within us. But at the end of the day, the joy of the gospel will be the indispensable means by which God the Father communicates the holy passion of the eternal Son through the spirit of sonship that makes us one family, that doesn't just circle the globe. It reaches into the highest heavens where the mother of God, where the angels and saints are older siblings of ours who are holier than no matter what siblings you might have had growing up. This is who we are, and this is why we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we are grateful beyond words. We are proud of you. And yet at the same time, we recognize that you have given to us your word. And that word became flesh, suffered and died, rose again and ascended on high, where he is seated at your right hand as a royal high priest to give us the word of thanksgiving, to give us the sacrifice of thanksgiving, so that we can find that word which is adequate to express the gratitude for the grace of the gospel. Abba, Father, help us to overcome all of the bad habits that we have, and especially when it comes to taking so much of your grace for granted. Help us to make up for lost time. Help us to reach out to lost souls. Help us to realize that we're not just out to reach them, that we are them, and that you need to reach us again with the grace of a conversion that is ongoing, ever-deepening, lifelong, and one that we need today, even now. Hear us then as we pray the family prayer that Jesus taught us, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Benedict, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Real briefly, let me just say, because this is Christendom where intellectual culture flourishes for Catholics, I want to encourage you to take advantage of the resources. I have some books. This talk is based upon a brand new book called Consuming the Word, the New Testament, and the Eucharist in the Early Church. It kind of picks up right where another book of mine called The Lamb's Supper left off. Another book that also came out recently is called Evangelizing Catholics, a mission manual for the new evangelization, and I also drew a fair bit from that. What I didn't draw from, but I want to recommend, is a book called Answering the New Atheism, Dismantling the Dawkins' Case Against God, that I co-authored with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Ben Weicker. A lot of our young people are being preyed upon but why I call, by what I call the new devangelization, and that is an aggressive form of atheism, the likes of which I never saw growing up. My most recent book is called Angels and Saints, A Biblical Guide to Friendship with God's Holy Ones to explain why the church is what we always heard growing up, a perfect society. Not because we're perfect, but because the church in its essential reality is located not on earth in the Vatican, but in heaven as well. Reasons to Believe helps you answer all of the common objections that I know I used to have about Mary the Pope, Purgatory the Saints, and all of those other things. 
And then this book called Joy to the World might look like a Christmas book, but in fact, you know, it's only a Christmas book if you only need joy at Christmas time. But the point is that we need joy all the, t- all the time, and it's subtitled How Christ's Coming Changed Everything and Still Does. If there is one book that is my favorite, because I got, I got asked that, I, I realize it's this book, Understanding the Scriptures. Archbishop Chaput was kind enough to ask me to write it, then to write the foreword, 15 chapters of the old, 15 chapters of the new, showing how in the Eucharist the new covenant is what we not only read, but celebrate and renew. So I want to thank you for the privilege of sharing, but I also want to say, let's prepare our hearts even now for the Holy Eucharist. And if you are going to applaud, don't applaud me. Applaud the mercy of our Almighty Father. God bless you.